Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 16th, 2017. Coming up, scientist and entrepreneur Larry Gold will share what to expect in science and health at the annual Gold Lab Symposium taking place this weekend at CU Boulder. And Boulder's world-renowned ecologist and philosopher Mark Beckhoff will talk with us about his new book, The Animal's Agenda, Freedom, Compassion, and Coexistence in the Human Age. We begin with a discussion about an upcoming event in science, the annual Gold Lab Symposium. The Gold Lab Symposium is this Friday and Saturday in CU Boulder's Munziger Auditorium. You can reserve your seat in advance at the Gold Lab Symposium website. As for what it's all about, well, each year the symposium focuses on the broad topic of science and health. Boulder scientist Larry Gold calls this year's symposium evolution from the lab to the living room. I spoke with Larry yesterday at his Boulder office as he printed out this year's Gold Lab Symposium agenda. Here's that interview. This is the agenda for the thing that's going to start this Friday, the 8th annual symposium. I'm so happy because the first year I said we're going to do an annual symposium, and we did seven more after that. Yay for us. <laughs> anyway, that's what I have on newspaper. People, if they register in advance, can they come to the conference? I hope they do. It's at Munziger, and there's room for four or 500 people, and we've got 370 signed up or 400, whatever the number is, which is great. Sign up and come. You've always had a theme for these. What is the theme this year for this intersection between science and health and public policy and people? The same thing. It hasn't changed. Over the years, what has happened is we went from thinking our job was to teach modern biology to all of the people in this town, or in our, our town. We've evolved to be kind of a mixture of policy and thoughts about how decisions are made in healthcare and the world and how you make things better for everybody and about half hard science. But the hard science is always done with an eye toward the fact about a third of the audience, about roughly 100 or 200 people out of the 500, are not technocratic wizards about bio, blah, blah. And so the speakers who are hard scientists speak English, I think. <laughs> I hope. Can you elucidate on that? Yeah. If I'm hearing something that I think no one will understand but me, I raise my hand and I say, wait a minute, stop that. And people then back up and help. These talks are for everybody. And if you think back, people who are world-famous scientists gave talks that were totally understandable, and yet the people in the room who were hardcore scientists learned from it anyway which is great because, you know, science types always think, oh, if you don't go technical, you're not going to teach me anything. But that's wrong because you have to think about science. So it's meant to be thought-provoking for everybody. In these eight years, have you seen some trends that have evolved into better health care or better <laughs> science for people, or is it a slow, slow process? Oh, my goodness. It's, it's two steps forward, one step backward, two steps backward, one step forward. This is a hard thing because... Everybody thinks these days, and correctly, 
that healthcare is both affected by biology and the social determinants of health. The social determinants of health are influenced by how fast things get better or don't get better for healthcare. It's political as well as social. You know, there's so many things that block progress. And the whole idea of this symposia is to give us all uh, an idea how we can help make it go a little bit more quickly. Well, and there we have this thing called standard of care, where standard of care is not always the best care. It is the standard. It is the default regular way of doing things, which sometimes is very helpful to people and other times slows down all kinds of other opportunities. Yeah, well, that's an amazing thought. I mean, standard of care, of course, is meant to be best practices. That's the idea. But do you think it is? Well, of course not. Come on, this is hard stuff. So, no, so I agree with you. I mean, I agree with you that it's hard. And, and you know, look at, look. I mean, there was just an article in the, in the paper or something the last few days about how salt is good for you in a way that everybody thought was bad, you know, for the last... 40 years and so and who knows these experiments are hard to do because there's so many variables in every experiment it depends on insulin sensitivity whether salt is good or bad did the article say that i wish i could tell you that but i don't remember at least that's one opinion but you know who knows i don't know i don't know anything i don't know i don't remember the answer in the article i read you know a lot has happened since last last year we announced you know we're finally going to do something we're going to do something about colorado health in some big longitudinal study and and longitudinal means lots of years involved looking at the same people over time to see what happens to them and also to take samples from them urine blood over a period of 10 years or so well that's right this is something which you're offering to the colorado community how many people have taken you up on that so far yeah. Well, one of the talks is going to be given by the person who's going to run that not-for-profit foundation called the Colorado Longitudinal Study, C-O-L-S. And her name is Phyllis Wise, and she's an extraordinary person. Is she wise? She is wise. She's my friend. She's wise. She's very wise. I hope she's listening. Phyllis, you're wise. She was once the chancellor at the University of Illinois and Champaign-Urbana. And now is retired from that job and is going to run this thing here for us. Well, has any blood been drawn yet? No, but we're getting ready. We're very close. I mean, actually, the effort that will now go on for the rest of this summer is to fundraise to get started in a serious way. We're, we're ready to do that. There are a number of institutions around the United States and world who are doing similar kinds of projects. Is that correct? No, but yes and no. For sure, the number of people who believe that samples should be taken along with health records over a period of years, the number of people who believe that is large. The number of people who have actually done that is zero or almost zero. Even the biggest studies, the UK Biobank, for example, the studies will occasionally go back and grab samples from a small subset of the people. To have actually a systematic look over a 10-year period with samples and records along the way we think is unique. We think it would really help the state. We think it would really help health care in general. You've described it where if somebody has uterine cancer, which can be a pretty rough cancer, if you can look back in time at the people who get that cancer and see what was happening to them five or 10 years before they got it, 
that might give some really good clues on how to not have them get it, it or other people like them. Yes. Um, I hope not back five or ten. I hope, you know, a few. I'm hoping that this study will lead to early detection of diseases that will then lead to better interventions for all those people. So it's meant to do that. And, and it, of course, you believe, or we, I believe, most of us believe that for some diseases, certainly most cancers, if you had the earliest possible both detection and scanning visualization so you could find the thing, so you could resect it, at the earliest stages before the thing had metastasized. You'd have you mean a resect, resect it means resect. cut it out. Cut it out, yes, yeah, sorry. I told you that everybody speaks English except me. Um, the hope For cancers, it's a pretty clear idea. If I recall, you're also having people share what they do in their lives as part of that study so that you can look back and say, wait a second, this person had these markers that should have gone in this direction, but they went in that direction. And how come? Well, I mean, that's the idea. It's meant to be a not-for-profit. It will be. It's meant to provide these samples to anyone who can do a legitimate study with them. So it's meant to facilitate better and better research It'll help in the state of Colorado people to get involved in clinical trials. It's a bold thing, and uh, it's a good start. Well, that's one thing that people can hear about by going to your symposium or looking at it afterward online. What are some other highlights that you would share that are favorites? Well, favorites I don't say that way. That's right. You like them all. I like them all. We actually have a couple of talks about sex. From a science point of view? Uh Uh-huh. Both the science and um, social. Judith Kimball is going to give a talk from her own research. Judith Kimball was once a student here and is a famous member of the National Academy of Sciences and is a professor in Wisconsin. And she's going to give a talk called The Ambiguity of Sexual Fate Determination because in some cases you can induce gender switching in various kinds of creatures by, you know, the moon and the sun and the whatever. And the temperature, I think that's with crocodiles. I think of crocodiles as frightening no matter what gender they are. I, didn't even, I don't even know how you can tell what gender a crocodile is. And, and then a woman named Sarah Bergamy, who is a therapist in Colorado, her title is remarkable. Blah, 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 blah. The elements of a blue world and a pink world in what is reality a purple world. And so this is going to be a wonderful talk. She's a remarkable woman. You know, this is just its so much fun. I get to do this every year. It's really fun. No offense to the first-year people. I always think, oh, it's the best one ever. Then we'll see. We have wonderful people coming. Larry Gold is a Boulder scientist and entrepreneur. The Gold Lab Symposium starts this Friday at CU Boulder's Munziger Auditorium. Find out more and register online by doing a Google on Gold Lab Symposium. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. Up next, we'll talk with ecologist and animal behavior expert Mark Beckhoff about his new book, The Animal's Agenda. Stay tuned.
That's music from the mysterious world of Sasson's Carnival of the Animals. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender, and now we're going to speak with a scientist about the mysterious world of animal minds and hearts, how they think and feel, and how it might be more ethical and beneficial for people to respect how animals think and feel as well. Our guest is CU Boulder's Emeritus Professor Mark Beckoff. Mark is world-renowned for his science and philosophical perspectives about the ability of animals to think and feel. He's co-authored a new book on this topic with CU Boulder bioethicist Jessica Pierce. The book is The Animal's Agenda, Freedom, Compassion, and Coexistence in the Human Age. Thank you for being here, Mark. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, Mark, I have to say that this book made me kind of uncomfortable. Well... I'm glad. (laughs) Tell me why you're glad. Is this a response you've gotten a lot about this book? Yeah, I mean, people who have read it feel a little uncomfortable. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. But yeah, we're trying to push the envelope in terms of really asking people, not forcing them, but asking them to think and to feel what non-human animals think and feel as they try to adapt to a human-dominated world. You know, Mark Beckhoff, for a long time... In the world of Descartes and before that and even recently, scientists and other people thought animals did not feel. Was that just an excuse to not feel bad about what we do to animals? Well, I think back when Descartes and others were working, they honestly believed that. And they didn't have the evidence that we have today, and indeed we've had for decades, about the cognitive, emotional, and moral lives of non-human animals. For you, in your science and your study of animals, there's no place where it doesn't happen. I mean, there's people who will say, well, we shouldn't treat primates um, in the way that we do. We shouldn't have them in zoos. We shouldn't be using them for research because they have too many feelings and thoughts. But what would you say about mice? Oh, I think it's very clear. We now know that mice display empathy. Um, Other rodents like rats, and I'm sure mice like to play and uh, laugh when they're tickled. And we know that mice can read pain in the face of other mice. So we've learned a lot in the last decade or two. But where does it stop? What about nematodes? What about roundworms? What about rattlesnakes? What about um, plants? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know where it stops, to be honest with you. Rattlesnakes would be different from plants and nematodes. But there's a lot of great evidence about um, how smart snakes are. um, Some snakes are great parents. And, you know, I don't know about nematodes, and I don't know about plants, but certainly there's a lot of people who are pondering the emotional lives and the sentience of plants and trees, for example. Well, that's right. There's Peter Volheben, whose hidden life of trees, what they feel and how they communicate, has taken the world by storm because it's talking about evidence that shows that plants are thinking in their way and feeling. Right, in their way. I think that's an important caveat. I've read the book. I think it's a phenomenal book. I don't think the evidence exists that's I don't think the evidence that exists is as compelling for that of many non human animals, but we need to keep the door open to the fact that there's a lot more communication, say, going on between trees and plants, their extensive root systems. Um, and we just don't know what's going on. But that doesn't mean nothing's going on. And it might be that we're at the same stage now as 100 or so years ago people were with Descartes, where they didn't believe animals had any feelings at all and didn't feel pain. Maybe we just don't know enough yet to know how plants feel. 
Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more with that. Well, so that makes your book uncomfortable again, because there's the question, we are life and life eats life. What's left to eat if we feel bad about all of the feelings around us and hurting the feelings of animals or plants because they don't really like to be eaten, for instance? Yeah, there's not much left to eat if you go that route. I was going to say you can start eating trees, but they may feel. Um, I don't know. I mean, to be honest with you, I just think that in terms of causing lesser harm than more harm, right now being vegetarian or vegan would be the way to go because we are then doing less harm. Do I know that empirically? No, but that would be what I think data um, support right now. Okay, so that was your perspective that you would rather that people not eat animals in any way, not eat dairy or anything, just let the animals be. That would be my preference, yes, yes. Do you expect everybody to do that? No, I don't. So what I do expect people to do is make choices that produce the, less, the least harm. So nobody has to eat factory farmed animals or animal products. So I would just close down factory farms tomorrow because in terms of if you could quantify it, the amount of pain and suffering that exists on factory farms alone, it's significantly more than the pain and suffering that comes from the use of animals in research, entertainment, for example. Well, Mark Beckoff, in your book, you describe how you think small farms are better than factory farms. And you're not a fan of Temple Grandin, the, the famous person who, the famous scientist at Colorado State University, who has done a lot to improve the kinds of trauma that animals go through on their way to being slaughtered. And you have a very um, outraged sense in your book talking about her phrase of the stairway to heaven. Yeah, I mean, Temple Grandin has done some, quote, good things for non-human animals, but the number of animals on factory farms who benefit from walking what she calls down her stairway of heaven, it's really a stairway to hell. It's really the stairway to the killing floor of a slaughterhouse. The number of animals who benefit might be 0.0001% of all the animals. So while people say she's done no good, I would say, well, maybe she's helped a very, very, very few animals but at the same time, she hasn't called for factory farms to be closed, and she should. So I think you could work to f make the lives of these animals better and then close the factory farms tomorrow. So these are all possibilities. And one other example that you have in your book is the dilemma of laboratory animals. And quoting from your book, you give the argument that philosophically many people give about lab animals and testing. Quote from your book, what if your daughter had a dread disease? Would you sacrifice her life to save a lab rat? That's a common argument. What's your response? My response to that argument is it's a good argument for a course in philosophy or ethics. Um, I don't think anybody will be confronted with that question. I, so I want to be very clear. I think it's a very important question, but it deflects attention away from the billions of animals who are used in brutal, invasive research. Do you think we need those animals in research? No, I don't. No, I. Th I th but, but why not? Well, because right now, if you go online and you do a search for non-animal alternatives to research, you'll come up with thousands of websites. And not only don't we need them, but the data that are produced are much more reliable from a lot of the non-animal methods that are being developed. Well, wait. With, with animals, if animals are tested on, then we get a sense of how a drug or a disease works in an animal. <clears throat> And so 
why wouldn't that be more reliable than simulations? Well, we don't. I mean, about 92% of all drugs that work on non-human animals fail on human animals. Meaning that if you test it in a rat or a mouse or a chimpanzee or a dog, it may work, but once you get it into a human's body, it doesn't work. Right. And more and more scientists are coming out on that, not because they're necessarily motivated by ethics, but they're motivated by the quality of the science that's produced. And I'm really in a, I've been in discussion with one scientist who's going to be closing down a lab because he's frustrated. He does great research, but the results just don't transfer over to humans as he had expected and hoped they would. You know, there is a phrase among Alzheimer's researchers about research into mice. It's called, that drug works on Mouseheimer's. It doesn't work on <laughs> human Alzheimer's, <laughs> but it works on Mouseheimer's because there's so many things that do seem to work better in the lab animals than they do once they're into a human being. Right. And what's also interested, interesting along those lines is that the Federal Animal Welfare Act in the United States specifically excludes lab rats and lab mice from being animals. So on the one hand, where have all the scientists gone? I mean, try explaining to a six-year-old that a rat isn't an animal. And I really don't mean that facetiously. They have incorporated a phrase in the Federal Animal Welfare Act that says we are redefining the word animals to exclude rats of the genus ratus and mice of the genus moose. If, if they're not animals, they're not producing animal models, right? So by definition, the research is useless because they say they're not animals. But, but Mark Beckoff, I, I thought that that phrase from what you wrote in your book was also because this gave a, an excuse to not treat them quite as well or have as much guilt as there is for, say, if you have a chimpanzee and you're treating a chimpanzee, there's a whole movement in laboratory research to say, don't treat the chimpanzee, don't, don't test on the dog, test on the rat or the mouse. What is your thought? Oh, I think that's ridiculous. I mean, because biologists like to sometimes talk about lower and higher animals. So they'll say chimpanzees are higher animals. Of course, the, quote, highest animal um, would be human animals, not because we live in Boulder, but because they say they're higher. And then they'll talk about lower animals, say like mice and rats. But there's no such thing as a higher and a lower animal. Each individual does what she or he needs to do to be a member of their species. And, and one interesting ar argument you make throughout your book, The Animal's Agenda, is Machiavellian, where you say, well, this may not be ideal what's happening, but if you want better lab results, if you want a better zoo, if you want any place where animals are incorporated, if you find a way for them to be happy and healthy and be themselves, you get better results. Without a doubt, people know that. There's been many, many papers written, more and more today, saying the better, the better you treat the animals, the more reliable are the results. And the other aspect of this in a book, The Animal's Agenda, is we argue that we need to replace the science of animal welfare with the science of animal well-being, which means that every single individual matters. Animal welfare patronizes other animals in the name of humans. The science of animal well-being says every individual counts. You gave an interesting example in your book, The Animal's Agenda, <clears throat> regarding how people, when they go to zoos, they don't become more environmentally aware for most parts, except maybe the Sonora Desert Museum, mm -hmm. where they have habitat involved in that. But instead, if people go out walking in nature, if they see the planet 
earth videos of animals doing natural things, there's more of a sense of connection then that you'd advocate more for that way of people to connect with animals than going to zoos. Oh, sure. I mean, the claim that zoos educate in a meaningful way is fairly vacuous in the sense that they they themselves in their own studies don't show that people who come to zoos then do things in the long term. And doing things means giving money for the animals in the zoo or for their wild relatives. There's no data on that. And I think I've heard especially young children be more in awe when they watch a good planet Earth or a good documentary. Or if they go out in a park and watch the animals nearby outdoors. Oh, yeah. I mean, in my book, Rewilding Our Hearts, I talk about these kids I met in New York City who I turned into field biologists instantaneously by having them watch squirrels playing in Central Park. There you go. Now, speaking of animals playing... You had a pet dog once, so you're not against pets if pets are treated with respect. And your dog, when it was old and dying, you fed your dog ice cream. I did, and I would do it again, although today I would probably feed him or her vegan ice cream, and I don't mean that facetiously, but at the time, Inuk was really, really sick. The vet gave us these golf ball-sized pills to shove down his throat. He hated them. So we decided, you know what? At the best, he had another month to live, gave him frozen pints of Ben and Jerry's or Haagen-Dazs. He actually became alive again. He ultimately died, but his last month on Earth was far better than if we had to shove those pills down his throat. He, be, he started avoiding us. He didn't like us anymore. Well, I'd do it again, but I'd just give him something vegan. Well, there's lots of more discussions we could have, lots more we could say about your book. Um, We've been speaking with Mark Beckoff about his new book, The Animal's Agenda, Freedom, Compassion, and Coexistence in the Human Age. Mark is an emeritus professor at CU Boulder in ecology and a world-renowned expert in animals and how they think and feel. Now, we're going to have another chance for people to hear Mark in person. If you would like to meet Mark in person, he'll give a talk about his book this Wednesday at Denver's Tattered Cover Bookstore. What time is that talk? 7 o'clock at the Colfax store, and Jessica Pierce, my co-author, and expert bioethicist will be there too. Thank you again for writing an uncomfortable book and also a fascinating and inspiring book. My pleasure for making you feel uncomfortable. Thank you. (laughs) Take care. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by me. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Saint-Saëns, Carnival of the Animals. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. <laughs>